Okay, hello and welcome to the Restoring Life podcast. Uh, this year, all of our dialogues are about a new story of sustainability. Um, and so I'm very grateful, actually, in so many ways, um, to be sat here with my friend, Paula Amley, who is a doctoral candidate um, in the Executive Doctorate of Organisational Change at Ashridge Holt, um, and also currently works in financial services for HSBC. So thank you, Paula, for coming and, and dialoguing with me on this one. Thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm excited for our conversation. Well, and we never know where it goes, do we? That's <laughs> the thing that I've learned over the last couple of years of doing this, is I never know where it goes, and I love the mystery. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I guess thinking back, you and I first met in 2014. Both of us, it was our first day, I recall it, at Ashridge Holt. Um, that time we were beginning our MSc in Responsible mm -hmm. Sustainable Business. And I remember um, you, there was kind of, it was one of the dining antechambers and the room that had all the fruit on the ceiling. And do you remember, it was like the newbie test where they'd say, who can spot the banana? And everybody was busily doing that. But you made this beeline across the room for me. And I was really, almost like I was really honored. And you and I just struck up a conversation and then, of course, synchronistically found ourselves in almost every single working group ever since, didn't we? Um, a relationship of which I am intensely grateful for um, because, you know, I look at your journey through not just the masters that we shared, but certainly into the doctoral work that you're now undertaking. And I can honestly say, for me, it's been one of the most radically honest um, you are one of the people I know who is most willing to really go there when it comes to some of the gritty, difficult, often denied emotional content that comes up when we're talking about things like climate change, sustainability, human impact. So, so yeah, I'd really love for you to just tune in and perhaps share a little bit of your personal journey um, over the last few years and, and what's alive for you right now in this interesting restoring state? <laughs> yeah, oh, my, my mind's kind of fizzing off in lots of different directions. Um, I have a memory that's starting from, from our relationship with each other. Um, I have a memory that um, we did an exercise uh, in, in, in a trio, in a triad, um, uh, with a Dutch chap, um, oh, yes, a man of called, uh, called Buzz, um, which was a, had a lovely flavour of story about it, and there was a lovely kind of listening quality. Um, and I can remember having been a bit, sort of having felt a bit sort of awkward and lumpen through those first couple of days of the um, of getting to know people, that, that that moment of feeling heard and, and listening to each other that, that there was a depth about that that felt very special. Um, and either later that day or the next day, um, we got sorted uh, into the Ashridge version of the sorting <laughs> hat um, into our learning groups. Obviously, um, we were Gryffindor, obviously. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. Um, but, um, but the three of us um, were in a group together and then um, three others joined us. And that, I think... I find it interesting actually to come into this story starting from that relationship mm. because um, I have a, if I had been telling this story two or three years ago, it would have been a very uh, individualistic story, a story, a very independent story, um, a, a story about how I went off and did a thing and stuff happened. Right. Um, and actually, as I look back, I genuinely think that the container of love, basically, and, and committed friendship that we were, we were lucky enough or happenstance caused to, to create between the six of us, right. that, that container gave a lot of courage, for me, certainly, um, to go to some... To go to some difficult places, I was going to say women, maybe weird places. Um, but the thing that was fabulous was having people who were prepared to hear me and not immediately go, 
I think you need to take take some sort of pill and have a nice little lie down. <laughs> um, um, hush now, right? Because of course, because I was coming on, uh, uh, we were doing a, a an MSc in sustainability. It literally had the word sustainability in the title, uh, and I had managed to not understand that it was a program that was related in some way to the environment. Like. <laughs> My head just had, I'd, I'd got all the way through the interview process. I talked to people about whether it was the right program for me. I turned up and the whoever was talking was like, well, and of course this is, you know, our concern for the environment. And I was like, well, huh? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, that kind of sustainability. Uh, uh, right. Yeah. So, so I was some, I mean, I was obviously not there by accident, but I had not quite... I was still think. I mean, the sustainability had had meaning for me. Um, we were coming out of the financial crisis, right. still coming out of the financial crisis. Uh, at that point, we had been very challenged in financial services about the damage that we had done. In many cases, inadvertently, I genuinely believe some people um, obviously had not been well intentioned, but but many were caught up in a systemic Absolutely. fail. Absolutely, right. Um, and I was all about how my question, my, the question that drove me onto the masters, I thought, was how do we lose our short termism? Uh, and at the time, I simply meant the chasing quarter to quarter results. Mm -hmm. That was all I meant by short termism. Mm -hmm. How do we lose our short termism and recommit ourselves to a way of doing business that has actual genuine value over the long term? Yeah. Um, and what I find really interesting hearing myself say that is that five years later, um, that is absolutely the question I am now asking, mm -hmm. but, but on a completely different scale. Right. That, that now I'm asking that question about how do we, as a culture that's addicted to consuming, shift into a more grateful, less driven more responsive um, way of doing society together, way of way of um, being together in a culture that gives us a genuine chance of having our great grandchildren still alive mm. and enjoying the earth. So actually, strangely, I was asking the right question, uh, or I was asking a relevant question, but just at a on a much a shallower level than, right. than, than I know. I well, know. And what I, I loved ask. about watching your early process, and you're right, and I know you hear me say this a lot in my work, which is that old adage, it's not me, that, you know, that we hear again and again in various different myths and, and, you know, mystic traditions of to come full circle, right? We have to walk that journey or, you know, to come full circle and know a place truly for the first time, mm -hmm. the classic, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, but I really feel like, where a lot of us begin our circle um, in these journeys and particularly around these big global issues and mm -hmm. system changes that we're considering is perhaps a bit superficial. <laughs> so I can honestly say there's been many places that I've begun that when I come full circle, I realize how much I was denying, actually how many things I really didn't want to look at because they were just deeply confronting and deeply painful. And so what I love about your journey is you dove in right off the deep end mm -hmm. from the start into perhaps one of the most existential human fears, which was death and mm -hmm. annihilation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And this is, I, I suppose, um, I have I have had a thread that's gone through my life of being willing to follow an instinct. Mm -hmm. um, so here I was, um, I was coming to a master's programme, supposedly with this very business question. Um, a thing happened to me on the way. So we, you and I hadn't met at this yeah. point. Um, which was, and so I must have been, I don't know, I must have been in my, I guess I was in my early 40s um, at this point. Um, and I was in the, I was on the way there on the train or something. And for the first time, the, the only, the reason I mention my age is because um, I was largely brought up by my maternal grandmother. Now, my parents were alive, but they were both, full-time at work mm -hmm. and so in terms of the caregiver 
my maternal grandmother um, relocated herself from South Wales, um, came to live with initially with us and then near us in Cheshire, mm. effectively brought me up until I was 11 or 12 when she went back. Um, and she was, for some period of time, uh, by far and away my favourite human. Mm. I was really, I was really attached to her. I loved her dearly. And it was only as an adult that I started to realise that she was also stubborn and difficult and prickly and basically you know, quite quite a difficult human being um but she wasn't difficult with me she was you know she loved me I loved her and she died when I was 25 wow um and I and and I spoke a poem at her funeral which was Christina Rossetti remember me right um and then I had not thought about either the poem or indeed my grandmother pretty much from then on and on that morning, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it, on, my, on that morning, on the way, this poem came to mind. Mm. And it was like she she accompanied me. Um, so so this is where the instinct kicks in. So I arrived on this business programme, accompanied by a memory or the spirit, or however you want to say it, accompanied in some shape or form by this very powerful memory mm. of, of my beloved grandmother my beloved and cantankerous grandmother <laughs> um, and and I followed the instinct to take seriously that that had turned up for a reason right and so when I had to pick my first essay I thought we were doing essays because um, <laughs> I hadn't quite understood really what action research was um so so when I discovered that one of the things action research is um is is it's following a thread of inquiry that's rooted inside your own life which is a fancy way of saying you pick your own essay titles right, right. <laughs> um, I, I was like well clearly I'm going to do something about death yeah because because this has come to me in, in this moment and so without really intending it but following that instinct um yeah I started with death mm. and I felt intuitively felt really clear to me that the mess we were in that had sustainability as the label. The f one of the reasons I hadn't thought about my grandmother is because I was I was really scared of death. Right. Really needed to deny it. Yeah. And once she was dead, I couldn't think about her. Mm. And and my fear of the environmental damage was was very similar. It was yeah. a similar kind of I can't look at this. Yeah. So so I started with death, but but to me that that linked so closely. To the fear that gets stirred if we actually stop and think about what the science is telling us we have done right. to ourselves and to potentially irreversibly to future, right. future generations. Well, and what I found fascinating about that process was um, reading your paper, and because we all did, right? We sh we shared what our inquiries. Um, it, it was I. It had almost the opposite effect on me. So for me, the way you had chosen to explore this really deep-rooted fear was with so much joy and with so much um, curiosity. And even though you were, you know, I mean, you were, I remember your collage boards, right? And I remember all of your art and your poetry, which I want to come back to in a minute. But this really, this very juicy, energetic, life-filled, mm -hmm. I would say, exploration of a fear then had the effect on me of wanting to dive in there with you. And certainly, you know, if I look at my own journey, particularly through the first year, because that was very much about the planet and what was happening. And for me, as many people who know my work will already know, I've always felt like the more than human uh, species of this planet are in some ways, many ways, more like my family than the human ones, because they certainly make more sense to me most of the time. And um, for me, that first year was a huge process of grief, mm. grief, and as Joanna Macy would say, allowing myself to feel my pain for the world mm -hmm. and allowing myself to acknowledge the deep-seated judgments I had of humans mm -hmm. because of that pain, but then realizing that, oh, hang on a minute, I am a human, so am I really going to be that arrogant to separate out my humanness in this kind of superior narrative than everybody else? I mean, it was crazy. So for me, your door, I mean, your work rather, opened this doorway of, okay, 
let's all just breathe for a minute and really face the very thing that we're most afraid of and the very thing that we've probably been running away from um, for a large amount of time. And I certainly saw the people in our immediate group respond in very mm. similar ways to your work. So yeah, how are those, how is some mm. of those themes developed beyond perhaps even AMSA into what you're using now to explore yeah. some of this juicy territory? So, and I really love this, I, I really love that reflection actually um, around the effect that the work can have yeah. Um, because I think, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm tremendously moved that it can have that effect. Um, and actually in my EDOC studies, mm. this question of what happens between people has, has really come, kind of come to the fore. Um, but I don't think I had understood. I think I, I was just focusing on being as authentic as I could in my moment mm -hmm. um, and the, the sort of the side effect as I thought it was then of what that makes possible for others um, right. hadn't really hadn't entirely occurred to me <laughs> at, at the time and now it's sort of a central question really about yeah. um, and I suppose so there's one thing I want to say about that 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 initial moment um, you know I'm not a I'm not a psychologist or a doctor and I don't I don't know that I suppose I'm always a little bit I, I I tread carefully because you never know what somebody else's tra traumas or their story or what they're ready for or they're right. not ready for and and I think I'm quite tentative around what somebody else might might mm -hmm. or might not be ready for all I can say for myself is there was a tremendously joyful thing that happened for me when I stopped running away from my greatest fear um, and I didn't know that the joy was there. I just knew that um, that it felt like the time. Mm. I mean, it was actually almost functional. It was a little bit like, if I'm going to stay on this course and look at these terrible facts, then the only way I'm going to be resourced to do that um, is if I deal with this overhang, this thing I hadn't looked at before. Right. And the thing that completely took me by surprise mm. um, was it, it It was not... A, it, uh, too many negatives. Um, the, um, it wasn't a question of looking at the difficult thing and having the superficial comfort of having been mistaken about the thing. So, yeah. so I think my child, my childhood version of me, would obviously hope that I would look at death, mortality, and discover that I was not subject to it. That there'd been there'd been some sort of get out clause. Um, <laughs> I was somehow exceptional, and and you know, if I look at death, I would discover that it didn't apply. Right. Yeah. That sort of that kind of oh, it'll all be it's okay like, because oh, yeah, phew, we escaped that one. It's yeah, like, we yeah, got yeah. away. With, we got yeah. away with it. Not right. going to happen. <laughs> um, and and definitely, my not looking at sustainability was this yeah. sort of this kind of hope mm. that actually they had somehow misread the numbers that, that somehow they somehow we were just not quite it just wasn't quite as bad as as, as, as we were being told yeah. uh, now in both of those cases I, I i believe that 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 superficial childhood kind of pipe dream that's that's not where we're at so the joy was discovering that knowing the truth is not as bad as you think it's going to be yeah absolutely. there's something there's that there's uh, in another context i've talked about that the hope that comes beyond hope mm -hmm. there's something there is there's actually something profoundly um relieving relaxing yeah um, there's something profoundly energizing actually if you think about all of the energy that we have to put into denying something yeah or i'm gonna fight it oh god or, that's you know, <laughs> yeah absolutely the fight against terrorism yeah. the fight against cancer that actually makes me cringe when i see that because it is that sense of like you say how much energy are we putting into blocking fighting yeah. controlling something when actually sometimes if you just acknowledge it yeah. it's like a huge out breath and you can then re 
gain that power to do something much more productive. <laughs> yeah, and, and so what I found was all of these resources that became available from stopping right. the effort to keep the unpleasant fact at, at bay. And, and uh, you know, I'm not going to lie, the, um, there was a, I spent most of pretty much all of answer um, processing grief. I mean, you've mm -hmm. talked about grief already, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was very absorbing. Uh, and part of the reason I ended up on the doctorate was because I feel like I got to the end of AMSA um, and I sort of uh, slid towards the finish line and finally ready to get started. And, and everybody else was packing up to go home right. because they'd done their thing. But mm -hmm. my thing was sort of beginning. And, and I have said a few times uh, in the context of EDOC, so my, my doctorate, that I feel like I'm five years into a three-year process um, <laughs> because the flow through from AMSA to EDOC has felt so, yeah. so, so has, has felt so smooth. But, I mean, coming back to the question of how does that help others, yeah. uh, so that's still a live question for me. I, I, yeah. I would have to say I don't entirely know. Or, or I entirely don't know, possibly. Um, but uh, the one, th the first thing I could say with confidence is, I think there is something profound about committed authenticity. So I think I think there's something really profound, and I think this is probably where theatre becomes really interesting. Yeah, I agree. Because because we all know it's not true. So that's. That's a, a, a scenario where we're playing make-believe. Yeah. But there's a truthfulness. There's a, I can't say this word, I'm going to have a go anyway, a very similitude. Yeah. Yeah, that one. <laughs> that sort of messed it up. That one. Uh, that one. There is a, there is a tr truthfulness of experience that, hap that, that gets communicated in great theatre. So in the moment, the person is telling a truth even though they're, they've assumed a character. Right. And if the audience is willing to meet them, something spooky, magical happens. Yeah, it does. Yeah? It does. So, so, so that first piece, that I think the thing I offer, as well as I'm capable of offering it at any moment in time, which may, may vary like the tide, um, as much as I can... I will commit to an author, a, 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 an authentic uh, exploration, right. and and I will speak truthfully about what I find, yeah. uh, including the truthful things that are really awkward and gnarly and for sure, yeah, and, and, and tricky. And and you're right, actually, I hadn't really thought about this, but. Um, I think you can I think I've learnt that it's possible to sense sometimes you have to ask but 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 it is also possible to sense a degree of permission or a degree of engagement and also a degree a degree where you stop definitely as well with with a, with, with a group um and and I think I mean this is going to sound very sort of hackneyed really because the the, the ingredients I suppose this is the difference between knowledge and wisdom, isn't it? That that knowledge can sound very complex and technical. Wisdom generally sounds pretty basic and mundane. Very simple. <laughs> but but it's the it's the finding yeah. it out for yourself and then and then living it. Um, so to me, um, this magic that happens in a performance, which is, I guess, what we're saying a committed inquiry can be a kind of performance, Absolutely. A, kind of, a kind of performing. Um, that magic, I think, is associated, one, with presence, with really yeah. sh really showing up. That's the authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, but also, back to your point about all these stories happening in context of relationship, um, the magic happens also because of connection. Yes. So there's, there, there's the other people. I mean, it can be, it can be pretty magic, um, having a moment on your own, I suppose I, this is where the challenge, I think, for humans is to understand 
how little we are alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so one of my key moments in my edoc journey right. was uh, I had I was playing around with poetry, uh, not mine in this case. This was um, a chap called Shakespeare. You may have heard of him. Um, <laughs> so maybe um, a few people have. Yeah. yeah. So I was, um, and I was also looking at John John Donne's poetry as well. So that that sort of that that period I was just reading it was beautiful words that was all and I went out to the garden to practice reading it because I wanted to 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 speak some poetry to my supervision group later and impress people with my beautiful recital I don't know something (laughs) like that um anyway this is very dangerous to read poetry out loud in a garden because you know you're not alone in a garden uh, a garden is full of living creatures and many L- of them respond to these living invitations beings. living yeah. beings absolutely <laughs> and so there i was innocently minding my own business reading poetry out loud and suddenly became profoundly aware of the presence of of, of these beautiful tree beings that i was that yeah. i was walking walking between and and frankly without wanting to sound too much uh, like I lost my mind, I just fell in love with those trees in an entirely different way. Yeah. There was this sense of discovering them as beings in their own right. Right. And so, so actually, when we think we're on our own, I'm I'm not really. And the stars are watching us. And, oh my goodness! Well, this know. is you know we can yeah. There's many different ways to tell this story, isn't there? Yeah. So there's the mythic realm. There's the you know the metaphoric realm. Mm-hmm. There's the depth ecology realm, which we yeah. spent quite a few years in, yeah. and then of course. Uh, you know, there's the theatrical realm. So I love how you're talking Mm -hmm. about theatre. I've been doing a lot of writing lately about the story hacking process itself and restorying and what Mm -hmm. does that actually mean? You know, I mean, like, literally, you know how people are. It's like, okay, right, give me a a bullet-pointed list of how do we actually do this? And I found myself, it's a great question, because I found myself really diving into my own Mm. inquiry process and, and saying, you know, so how... How am I now expressing this in the world? How is how do I restory not just with myself but mm-hmm. with others that mm-hmm. I work with? And so, I hit upon. Um, obviously, we have the metaphor of you know our entire lives are a theatre. We are an actor. We yeah. try on many different masks. We have many different characters. And the killer is when we realise that we are the ones with the choice about how we write the script, mm. not necessarily with the choice of the ecosystem, although that's another conversation for another time Mm -hmm. on all sorts of different mythic realms. But let's just assume for now, you know, we get to choose uh, the words we speak or Mm -hmm. the poetry that we represent. And I hear upon, actually, as we move through these different acts um, of the restoring cycle, you know, our degree of authenticity naturally changes. So, you know, we come into life in what I call the spark with just this inherent honesty, this authenticity as children of just showing up as who we are. But very quickly as we moved into act two, which is the tests and challenges of life on our planet as we know it right now, Mm. our authenticity is challenged and often we break and we stop speaking our truth and we put on a variety of different layers Mm. that mask not just us from others, but us from the world and us from ourselves, which is kind of the most potent. And then as you move through the various acts, really, I call it a process of remembering. Mm. And we're remembering our truth. We're remembering who we are. We're remembering how to speak that truth in the world. Um, But we tend to unlock these superpowers, these human superpowers with every single instance that we come across. And so this idea of, you know, super awareness, Mm. where suddenly, like we just described, we become aware of all these things that we haven't been paying attention to and huge things that actually are really inhibiting us showing up in our truth. And that often leads to this idea of super connection. And just what you were speaking Mm. to, I think, so beautifully and super connection to the other humans around you who suddenly go me too oh my god you as well oh I really oh I thought I was the only one it's like no we're all scared shitless of what's going on around us go figure (laughs) the biggest revelation um but also connection to the more than human world to coin a David Abram phrase so Yeah, this idea of of you can understand how interconnected we are with not just each other, but the world, but we can also then suddenly have these moments of epiphany like you did with the trees, Mm. where we suddenly experience it and embody it on a whole Mm. new level. And I don't know about you, but once I've had one of those experiences, 
I cannot go back to the version of me or the mask I was wearing before that. I have to change up my character and I have to adopt a new script. Well, it's funny because as you were speaking, the, the thing in my head was this idea of not, of, of being changed. And you probably could fall asleep again, but you have to work at it. It's much harder. It's, it's harder to, to, to go back. And, and, and equally, um, one of the, um, certainly my experience, I, I don't know if it's a universal experience, but I suspect maybe, maybe it is. Um, having had that quite dramatic wake-up moment of realising that trees are alive <laughs> and have presence that I can relate to. Um, the next connection is easier and can be right. accessed more readily. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose it's a little bit like um, shouting through a gale and the wind drops and, and actually you don't need to shout quite so <laughs> hard or yeah. be shouted at quite so hard. Um, and one of the things that's been interesting in my EDOC work, I'd had this idea well, I'd had this experience, actually. Um, I had spent Christmas um, in a house near a beach. And for very mundane reasons, I was trying to get my steps up. I was a late convert to steps a day. And in order to get my steps up, I was walking on the beach. Probably for about 90 minutes a day. That was mm. about the amount of time it was taking me to get to that target. So, nice. so, so the point is, completely mundane not seeking a magical experience with nature. But what I discovered was that repeated being in that environment day after day, in spite of me, yeah. caused me to be more sensitive to the environment. And I had that experience, which mystics often talk about, this sense of the veil getting very thin. And this sense that, yeah. that whatever is on the other side of consciousness was, was peering through very close through this increasingly sort of misty gauze and that we 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 could almost connect with each other and it was such a strong and powerful experience um for me that i i formed a view that what i should do for my research was spend a lot more time in nature uh, and so i came up with this idea um that i would walk around wales um, the, the beach was in Wales and I thought okay if this is the effect 90 minutes a day um, well Wales now has a path that goes all the way around it I'll walk the, the path it'll take me 10 weeks or whatever and, and I'll have a more a more dramatic experience um, <laughs> and that might still happen someday but uh, that's not what I've had I hope it does I hope it does too. I hope it does <laughs> I want to read the book of the stories that happens yeah. from that <laughs> But actually what's happened in, so far instead in the meantime, I, I had a very interesting challenge from someone um, who was saying, well, that's, that's lovely to, to have the luxury of being able to break out of your ordinary everyday life. And, and it's nice that you live somewhere that can offer that to you mm. and where nature hasn't been so degraded that there's no point. You know, it's, that's nice for you. Yeah. Um, but I wonder what it would be like encountering nature in east london yeah what would it be like walking 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 the local neighborhood walking the squares and the gardens mm. um and i got curious about that and so actually what what i ended up doing was i worked out how long the, the wales coast path was so it um it's uh, with, with, with a little bit of shilly shallying around at the top to to connect the coast path with offers dyke path it's um a thousand and fifty seven miles and so, um, so, so I've been walking a thousand and fifty-seven miles round my local neighbourhood. Wow! Um, and uh, and actually, um, doing sort of ten thousand steps a day takes about seven months. Yeah. Um, so I've I've just recently finished my first cycle, and I'm going to do a second, uh, a, a second cycle. But what I found, so so not so very far, about a ten minutes walk from here, uh, there is a proper scrubby, underloved little east end park it's called the king edward memorial park um and it's two two scraps of grass and some trees and a few bushes i'm making it sound even scrubbier than it really is <laughs> um and i 
love it. Mm. I love it. It I'm it's not fancy. I can't find a better way of saying it. Yeah. It's not fancy. But uh, but but it is full of beautiful mm. life. And this thing that I wasn't expecting that I discovered was that taking lots of little steps in a sort of unremarkable local place gave me the time I needed to be able to fall in love with what outwardly is an unremarkable local place. Wow, I love that. Mm. And I mean, it really speaks to a lot of the stuff that I end up kind of throwing as challenges, Mm. I'd say comfort zone challenges to those Mm. of us. Because I think one of the biggest excuses I hear um, when you start talking about these kinds of bigger, more complex global issues is this sense of uh, either being overwhelmed and, you know, well, what good is it if I <laughs> mm-hmm. reduce my carbon, recycle, you know, all the number of different ticks, tick box exercises that we have out there right now mm. with some of this stuff or this sense of what you just named, which I think is a really big one, which is, oh, but it's okay for you. <laughs> so the victimhood, yeah, you know, so the, yeah. a lot of us, if not all of us, I would say, wear the mask of the victim from time mm. to times in different forms, but we all have that storyline in our script. So to then be able to derail any excuses that come out of our victim mm-hmm. selves, um, I think is really important. And so this idea of the magic in the mundane mm-hmm. and, you know, one of my friends always says, you know, I don't know why we talk about nature and humans. Well, it, we are nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, there actually is no difference. So nature and certainly our living earthly ecosystem is found everywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> on the yeah. underground in the plastic wrapper on the street in the tree being in the park in the metal on your car tire I mean you know mm-hmm. it is literally everywhere so you know your exploration and adventure into that magical mundane mm-hmm. I think is for me a call to action or at least a call to experiment to anyone anywhere you know and I love it for that it's I love its universality mm-hmm. yeah yeah I was um I was challenged in one of my midpoint exams around activism around yeah it, it's all very well for you right um with your nice middle class life <laughs> right and, which I take really seriously Absolutely. by the way that it is uh it's very it's very easy to be unintentionally patronising. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so to this question about, is it, is it completely trivial? Does it, does it make any difference um, for me to have a practice of going for a walk um, and maybe putting my hand gently on the bark of a tree and maybe writing something poetic is that you know is the universe grateful for me for doing that um or or do I need to be gluing myself to shell um you know um, and I don't right. uh, these things don't need to be either or right, right. But, but there's a I think there is a question around um in a sense there's a there, there can be a question around um what right do you have to, to to tell me that we're breaking the planet? But weren't you in Seattle last month? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. you, didn't you? Did you walk? How did you get there? You yeah, know. Yeah. So, um, and for me, there's there's the thing about you. Know, it's no, I don't think it's useful to label a thing and then hate it. So label capitalism or label carbon intense lifestyles you know we are certainly you and I western women educated with resources with the jobs that we have um we are absolutely um you know the product of late 20th century early 21st century capitalism definitely we we have benefited tremendously from from this this structure, um, and um, so, I'm, I'm, so I'm not going to pretend that that's other. And actually, yeah. I I learnt that that ability to look that in the eye um, from one of our 
um, AMSA uh, colleagues uh, from Mashudu. Yes. This this ability yeah. to know, to this ability to to name, the the we are enmeshed in the system we might wish to uh, yes. to criticise, and that's not an excuse to ride along the collusion with the system. Yeah. 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 So yeah. so uh, I discovered very quickly uh, that. I can't uh, live a life where I consume no single-use plastic. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't grow my own food. Um, yeah. If I want to eat... <laughs> in the middle of London. <laughs> I will buy things yeah. that are wrapped in plastic, that have travelled miles. Um, you know, I, I can't take that sort of holier-than-somebody stance and, and be like oh plastic free yeah. but I can be responsible about um how much of it I thoughtlessly consume yeah yeah um yeah so no I agree it's yeah. there's lots and lots of gray shades in here isn't there mm -hmm. and I know you hear me say this quite often but oh there's there's a there's a fine line and it's a really difficult one that I certainly do not get right all the time between Freedom of choice mm -hmm. and discernment, mm -hmm. no, um, and judgment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I know for me, when I've tipped the wrong side of that line, um, I am telling myself stories that inherently separate me from life, mm -hmm. you know, or me from other people, or or, or, yeah. um, or me from an issue, <laughs> for that matter. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in discernment, actually, largely, I am much more recognising of that fact mm -hmm. that I am interconnected in an incredibly complex system, mm -hmm. whether I choose to call some of it bad, good, or otherwise, mm -hmm. actually, at the end of the day, the only thing I have control over is my choice, mm -hmm. and to what degree my choices are serving me, we, and this entire system yeah. of life is really the only thing that, you know, each and every day we ask ourselves that in a in as honest a way as we dare i think yeah and it's the starfish story isn't it it's yeah. the, the 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 man throwing starfish back into the sea right made right. a difference to that and it's interesting because because in, in that little story where where he he's challenged and he says i made a difference with this starfish and this yeah. starfish you see i think there's also uh, another dimension which is mm. he's also making a difference to him oh to, yeah to himself for sure yeah the the um and and so for me um, it may be true that, well, I'm sure it's true, that our structures of use and reuse are flawed. Um, and yeah. that it's almost certainly true that many of the things I think I have successfully recycled for the benefit of the planet, um, perhaps, perhaps that's not actually how, how it was. You know? Right. Um, so... So, so there's something you know. I suppose we're separating, aren't we? Between oh, I'm separating uh, between the intent and the attempt versus whether the outcome is is yeah is successful or not. And to be clear, I think as a society we should commit to to using less stuff, to recycling more effectively. Yeah. Um. And and to and and if it costs us a bit of money to do that, mm -hmm. um, my vote says let's spend the money. So, so I'm not suggesting that nothing matters. This is not, that's not quite what I'm saying. Um, but I think for us to break through that sense of powerlessness, I mean, the reality is, so I heard, I think yesterday, um, I always find it helpful when, when, when people give dimensions to things. Mm -hmm. So, so I find it helpful to be reminded that, you know, we're now 7 billion people heading towards 10 billion people. I know, right. Uh, but also, what I hadn't known, but the geneticists, ooh, I can't say it, geneticists told me, is that if we start here and we look backwards in time, um, there's about 100 billion humans that have ever lived. So... Puts it in perspective, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, the, so, so I am one of 100 billion humans that have ever been since we were modern humans uh -huh. and in not too very long and obviously at that point the maths backwards math will change but we may well get 
to 10 billion people living and breathing alive at the same time. Yeah. So my decision about whether or not I recycle my lunch <laughs> in context of 110 billion people is trivial. Yeah. Whether I get on the plane on it is trivial. Yeah. But it matters to me. Um, it matters to, to my sense of whether or not I am living a responsible life. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where it gets maybe a bit woo-woo and I haven't really got an explanation for it but um, but I do genuinely believe um, and I suppose I suppose I also think even if I'm deluded I feel a bit Dostoevsky here even if I'm deluded I still prefer to, to, to believe that throwing my effort in a positive direction is more useful than throwing it in, in into despair or nihilism in, in yeah. some way um and you and i've talked previously about i think there's something tremendously powerful about the act of being grateful the act of thankfulness the act of speaking the joy of being conscious being yeah. being the universe experiencing itself the act of saying how just astonishing it is to have had the opportunity to live on this blue-green planet. Yeah. To, I mean, weeds. Aren't weeds amazing? They're um, incredible. This, 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 this determination of life mm. to be generally somewhere yeah. uh, slightly, uh, slightly inconvenient. But, but this, 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 this urge to exist. Yeah. It's just so astonishing. Yeah. No, yeah. I can't. Honestly, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, it, what's interesting is uh, out of a lot of the seemingly serious uh, roundtable discussions that I've been involved in lately or organisational constellations or, you know, thought leadership groups all around sustainability, the consistent theme that comes out at the end of the day is this idea of joy. Mm-hmm. And actually, why is it that as human beings, we are not choosing to experience more joy? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I, I can't remember how you phrased it earlier today, and it was mm-hmm. just so exquisite, but, you know, your work around this hope beyond hope mm-hmm. and actually the articulation of the joy of the universe being put back into the human mm, mouth mm. and vocabulary. And I know that's a passion yeah. you and I both share. Mm-hmm. But through poetry, through laughter, mm-hmm. through dance, through walking, through appreciating your lovely local park, you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how we do it. As we would know from the quantum realm, any little thing that we do in our own selves affects the whole. And so, yeah, couldn't agree more. So there was something, I'd, we were exploring it a couple of months ago and we haven't, it didn't quite go anywhere, but I still, I still got the idea of creating a storyboard. Uh, it, 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 I've got that idea in my mind. So, so over the course of my kind of walking mini adventures, um, I wrote a few poems about my experience of being alive in the world. And um, one of them was more around the sense that the, the, the comfort that there is in not, not being alone, the comfort that there is in, no, in, in noticing that we are a gathered community of beings. There's something profoundly yeah, profoundly comforting in the presence of nature. And I think that's probably why there's such a sense of grief and, and this this outcry at the, at the thinning of the natural world, that yeah. um, there's just something very sad about becoming alone, that, uh, that, that, that we're having to, 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 to confront, uh, uh, I, I suppose. Um, so anyway, I had, I had a few poems, um, and... Um, some of them are more depressing than others. Um, and I'd recorded them and I'd had this idea um, of cutting them together in, 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 into a sort of a story. Um, and, and, and the idea... The idea was around... Um, uh, it was very influenced. I was very influenced at that, at that, in that moment by the 
beautiful and tremendous work um, that has been associated with the lost words. Mm. Um, so yeah. uh, the uh, writer and illustrator Jackie Morris, whose idea it was originally, and she involved uh, Robert McFarlane. They wrote together, and she she yeah. she also provided the the, the illustrations. Um, this calling back of lost words and lost nature into existence. Um, and that, uh, as you probably know, uh, sparked into um, a, a, a folk album for the, the uh, turning them into songs because they've been described as, as, as spells and so these are spell songs. Yeah. Um, and in that first tour that they did with these beautiful songs the words the illustrations and then these fabulous musicians um, they spoke about I think it was their phrase they spoke about the power in making a beautiful protest the power in um, in speaking about the beauty of the nature that's being lost in speaking beautifully about it, in singing beautifully, in making beautiful music, just making something as gorgeous as we can make it, mm. um, as as an act of defiance right. and hope. And I would say, I don't know that they would in that context, but I would say as an act of worship, as an act of thanksgiving. Um, and so I came up with this idea um, that I've not yet done anything with, of, of a hashtag, uh, make a protest beautiful, mm, um, and that yeah, that. right, yeah. and th- and that that those of us who are drawn towards the creative arts in some shape or form, that one of the things that we can do mm. is um, is express in beautiful ways the love that we have for the world that's around us, the hope we have of of, of seeing it preserved, the grief we feel. Uh, as it vanishes and actually this brings me um back around to to, to drew dellinger uh, who wrote writes fabulous poetry that that i know we encountered um yeah. in amsa but he's also uh so something i didn't know so so we encountered a, po- a poem that 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 drew had had written called hieroglyphic stairway yeah. which which speaks about speaks beautifully about thinking about what what future generations would say to us in this moment where we have an opportunity to do something mm-hmm. we have to choose whether or not we will um but he also um i've also separately now heard a recording of him of him speaking at a conference uh, where he was talking about having been mentored by thomas berry yeah 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 and 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 so he was talking about thomas berry's call to enter a new story, right? Um, and and Thomas Berry uh, writing and speaking, I think in 1978, I think it was, yeah. talking about the, the problem that the world has uh, being that we have fallen out with our old story, but we hadn't found our way into you know into this new story, and 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 this and this call to to people to become part of making the new story but the thing that he said that i thought that's that's relevant i think for for this kind of poetic performance creativity this make a protest beautiful um so so dellinger describes barry as saying uh that science can teach us a great many things but science can't teach us what to do with science i love that um and and that i think is where the artists yeah. have a responsibility and a, and a power and a possibility this this um the artists and the philosophers and the the dreamers the dreamers and the, the people mystics, who right and the people who do, do the thinking about what ethics means in mm-hmm. practice and um you know this space this moral beautiful creative space mm. that, that allows us to say this would be this would be a good thing to do with the knowledge that we have, and now, and now that's taking us to to Aldo Leopold, and that a thing is good if it tends towards the good of the biotic community, right. and it's it's not good if it tends not to be. Oh, yeah. love that! Yeah. Well, and on that note, yeah. you know, it's quite prophetic, in fact, that actually we began this this conversation in the light, 
Yeah. And actually in the time that we've been dialoguing, mm. the light's gradually been leaving us. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm describing this so, so those yeah. of you listening can picture it in that, yeah, your face has fallen into darkness and it's almost like you are weaving words around mm. now. Um, so, yeah, if you were to weave either a final invitation mm. or a final thought, perhaps even some final lost words for people, what would you leave everybody with, do you think, Paula? Um, actually, I would, I would really like to leave, I'd, I'd really like to speak um, a few of Nan Shepherd's words, if that's okay. So, so Nan Shepherd wrote a gorgeous book called The Living Mountain, which has been recently republished and um it's a it, it's it's a book about her exploration of, of her local environment which is the Cairngorms but what I think is so amazingly beautiful about it is how vividly she encounters tiny moments in in nature and so so I think the thought I would leave with people is um really urging really urging us to take seriously these small moments of noticing ourselves being alive and noticing ourselves being in this uh, profoundly rich universe even even one experiencing the the, the losses that we're experiencing today right. um and i just if it's okay i'd like to read and I understand if you have to edit edit it to, to death please read please I, read I want away. to read just a moment about a moment when she encounters an owl it's a paragraph long. Lovely. Um, but it's what I love about it is it's an it's an it's an irrelevance, it's a fleeting, un, unimportant moment that she has just made gorgeous mm. in, in writing about it. And she writes once on a night of of clear silence, long past midnight, lying awake outside the tent. My eyes on the plateau, where an afterwash of light was lingering. I heard in the stillness a soft, almost imperceptible thud. It was enough to make me turn my head. There on the tent pole, a tawny owl stared down at me. I could just discern his shape against the sky. I stared back. He turned his head about, now one eye upon me, now the other, then melted down into the air so silently that had I not been watching him, I could not have known that he was gone. To have heard the movement of the midnight owl, that was rare. It was a minor triumph. Mm. And that's that moment of interaction with a another living creature, that moment of recognising each other. I love this idea of her staring at the owl and the owl mm. staring at her. And then, you know, and, and if, if, you know, if this was an adventure book, that, um, that moment wouldn't make it into the story or it wouldn't be important. But, but for her, it's, it's a triumphal moment because she's so attuned to the environment that she's in that she heard the movement and had the experience and I just think I mean to first start her writing speaks for itself right it's so beautiful oh uh, but, but it's that it's that knowing herself as part of nature I think that makes it so astonishing and I guess the thought I get to leave us with for now is so what if these micro moments of adventure are actually all there is mm. and perhaps we're missing 90% of the beauty mm. of life that's going on all around us and our story by simply rushing through it too fast. Mm. Thank you so much, Paula, for this incredible dialogue. I can't wait to see where your work goes next, <laughs> where the inquiry takes us yeah. all, where the mini adventures <laughs> take us all. I could very much see you and I weaving around each other in the near future as we've always kind of foreseen since yeah. that fateful moment in the fruit-laden halls of Ashridge. And, um, yeah, and all of the links to some of the juicy juiciness that we've covered in this episode I'll put in the show yeah. notes for people so, so that people can go on your own mini-adventures mm. and follow your own inquiries, as always. Thank you. Thank you. 